Because of the nature of SaaS as a platform, it's a lot easier to switch than it used to be. I'm old enough to have been around in like on-premise, mainframe, you know, deployments of software, huge upfront investment. So a customer was incented to stick around on that platform for a long time and the vendor was not that incented to do anything really special. In SaaS, switching costs are much easier. And so there's a lot more work that has to happen on the customer success side to again, ensure value, high, you know, high value use cases, et cetera. So a lot of what we do is focus on doing our best to measure customer health. And you can think of health from a vendor's perspective as value from a customer's perspective. So if I believe you as a customer are deriving great value from Box, I will give you a high health score. If I think you're not deriving great value, you're gonna have a low health score. So the battle for us is less about, oh, we've got to fend off these competitors all the time. Really, if you think about it proactively, our job is just deliver as much value as we possibly can. Hi, I'm Ted Blosser, CEO and co-founder of WorkRamp, where we're redefining the corporate learning space with the world's first all-in-one learning cloud for employee and customer learning. Welcome to the Learn Podcast, where we learn from the biggest leaders in SaaS and hear what makes them successful. Hope you enjoy the show. Hey, everyone. So excited to have you back today. We are delighted to have on our guest, John Hurstein, Chief Customer Officer at Box. John and I worked together back in the day at Box, so I'm so delighted to have him on the show. Thanks for joining, John. Absolutely, Ted. Thanks for having me on, and it's great to see you again. Well, let's jump into it. Let's start with your background. Give us a, let's say, a cliff notes summary on your career, and then we'll actually spend some of our time and your deep dive into uh, your time at Box, and also Maybe one interesting fact many people may not know about you. Okay, uh, sure. So I spent most of my career in consulting. So I, I came out of college with a computer science background, worked for a company that used to be called Anderson Consulting, uh, now Accenture, you would know it as, and uh, then worked for a software company called Informatica, then one called NetSuite, and now here at Box. So I'm a little unusual in that I tend to spend a lot of time um, at one company, and I think my average tenure at companies now is seven or eight years. Uh, so although I've been working for 30 plus years, I've only worked for four companies, which is, as you know, quite unusual in tech. As I said, most of my career was in consulting. Box was the first role I had where it really expanded on my consulting background to look more uh, comprehensively at all of what we now call customer success. So at Box, where I've been for the past 12 years, customer success comprises uh, our CSMs, our customer success managers our consulting organization and our support team, as well as a couple other miscellaneous things. But that's kind of the core of what I'm responsible for here at Box. And before we jump into your time at Box, and I'd love to share some of the stories we, we shared together. What was, that, what was that tipping point that changed you from consulting over into, I don't know if you call it the dark side, but into, <laughs> into let's say, working at an actual company versus consulting uh, for one? Well, um, yeah, it's a great point. I mean, the, the three companies I worked for in consulting were all very different. It, you know, Accenture was a pure play consulting company, right? So we were just kind of going in, doing work for clients and coming out. And you're right, it's very different, right? When you're day-to-day -day responsible for the decisions that you make and living with them versus your consultant, you fly in, you make some recommendations, then you leave, and it's some sort of someone else's problem to solve. Um, and you never really get to see those outcomes. You never really get to see whether the decisions or recommendations you made panned out. Right. And actually, one of the things I learned from one of my bosses at Box was you should be in a role long enough to live with the consequences of the decisions that you make in that role. Right. And if you're bouncing from year to year to different things, you always, it always, you always look back and think you were super successful, but you don't actually know. So 
Um, maybe I've, I've been a little extreme on that or I'm at companies too long. I don't know, but it's been a great, it's been a great time at, at Box. But, you know, the, the other two software companies I worked for before Box were consulting teams inside of a software company, implementing our software for customers and um, was able to kind of take that experience. That's what started the conversation with Box because Box was starting to get into enterprise, as you'll recall. And we were starting to have higher expectations from customers around, well, okay, we bought the software, but now what do we do, right? And with, with smaller customers, it was like, oh, well, Box is easy. You just turn it on, you start using it, it's no problem. But when you're in the enterprise, you have to think about things like, well, what about security and user management and content migration? And it becomes a consulting engagement. And so I first started engaging with Box around this consulting conversation, but then uh, my boss, who was our COO at the time, said, well, we've also got a support team and we've got these folks that we call client service associates. Like, why don't you take all that together and, and sort of run it? I didn't think I was interviewing for that job. I thought I was interviewing for a consulting job and it turned into this, like, why don't you go run customer success box? Package deal. Well, I'll, I'll date ourselves a little bit. So when we met, I think it was 2011, I still remember, yeah. it almost feels like yesterday. And so I wanted, I wanted you to actually share a story with the audience where and I'll, I'll, I'll tip the audience off a little bit. It was a story around you're introducing yourself to the company. I was in the lunchroom. I, I think I was sitting towards the back and I was like, who's this guy, John, coming in? Yeah. And you tell this story around this barbershop experience. I literally haven't forgotten it to this day. Tell us a little bit about the story. Yeah. Um, if you still agree with the story, <laughs> give the audience some background on the story. Because again, if it got etched in my head, I wanted to get etched in everyone listening's head, head as well in terms of how you think about customer success. Yeah, it, it, is a, it is kind of a memorable story for me too. I went out to Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, it was my first uh, customer visit at Box. So it was, I don't know, within a few weeks that I was at Box and there was a, a team, I think a CSM and a, a sales rep were going out to see this customer. And they were one of our first enterprise customers. It was kind of a big deal, probably one of our biggest customers at the time. And um, it was my first first customer visit, so was really looking forward to it. And I realized a day or so before the, the trip that like my hair was sort of out of control um, and uh, wasn't super professional. And I, I, I just thought I need to get a haircut. But with the travel and everything, I didn't have time. So I land in Cincinnati and I start and I, I was using Yelp at the time. So, uh, you know, sort of looking for, you know, the best barber I could find, the best rated barber in Cincinnati. And I find this uh, this barber shop. And they had a really funny name. I don't remember now, but it was something like, you know, the King's Barber or something about Royal Barber or some, something like that. So it was sort of fancy, but you go there and it's not fancy at all. And um, it was just sort of an experience of being in this barber shop. And this guy was like an Elvis impersonator and he'd been in movies. And so he had this whole backstory. His son was working in the shop. I think it was summertime. And his son was like, uh, offered me a shoe shine. Like there was just this whole experience that was going on. But what really stuck out to me in the story that I told at Box was when he was all done cutting my hair and, you know, they, there's that moment, that reveal moment, right, where they, you look in the mirror and they hold the, the mirror in the back of your head. You can kind of see what it looks like. And he said to me, is this the best haircut you've ever received or something, something along those lines? And it was such a direct question. And I don't know if it was or not, but you kind of felt compelled to say, yes, <laughs> this is great. And then he said, well, that's, that's good because if you said no, I wasn't going to charge you for this, uh, for the haircut. Um, and what the reason why it really stood out to me from the standpoint of my job and why I related to the box was that our mindset around customer service, I wanted it to be that, right? Which was to, to create the best experience we could for our customers. And, um, it's funny when I, I, I told you the story of how I started at box, 
it was really a consulting conversation. There was no job description because there was no one doing that job at Box. And so the day I started, my boss handed me basically a half page written, you know, uh, job description and basically said, here's what your job is, go do it. And effectively what it said was, your job is to delight our customers. And so my mantra, you'll probably remember this, Ted, for the first couple of years I was at Box was all about customer delight. And that story was a story of customer delight. Like, was this a delightful experience for you? But in the vein of your podcast, which is all about learning, what I would, what I would say to you and, and your audience is that I think I learned that that was a little too simplistic, right? This idea of customer delight. And what I mean by that and what I say quite often is that uh, delight is uh, important, but it's insufficient, right? In, in the sense that it's not enough to just delight your customers. Your customers can love working with you. They can think you're a great partner. They can think you've got great people, great values and all that. But at the end of the day, people buy software or products in general or services in general because they believe it will provide some business benefit to them, right? If, it's, if we're talking about B2B, right? B2C is obviously a completely different world. But in the world of B2B, people don't buy products because they like you, right? They buy products because they think they're going to solve a problem in their business, generate some ROI. And so you have to couple delight creating a delightful experience with your customer, for your customer with providing real business value, solving real business problems. And so it felt, you know, now when I look back on it, it felt like just too simplistic to say our jobs to delight customers, we should have happy customers. And there's even been some customer success organizations who call their team, like, you know, the customer happiness team or whatever. It's like, it's really not about happiness. And in fact, sometimes you have to tell your customer things they don't want to hear in the interest of giving them more value right? And the interest in getting more out of your product. And so your job isn't actually always to make customers happy. It's to make sure you're delivering value to them. So anyway, long story, but that's a learning that I've had over the years about, you know, the difference between delight and value and both are important. When did that shift uh, happen in your mind? Was it an ARR amount? Was it like a trend where a churn was ticking up and you're like, you know what? It's just like smile our way through this churn <laughs> reduction, right? Like, that's not going to solve things. At what point did it hit you on the head where it's like, you know what, we actually need to move from just a delight focus to a, a value focus. And, and how's that been going since? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I Honestly, I don't know if there was a lightning bolt moment where it was like blindingly obvious that, you know, I'd been, been wrong the whole time. I think it was more of a gradual transition. And, and part of it had to do with the fact that, and again, you'll recall this, but early on, our go-to-market model was a viral model, right? It was all about free users inside of companies using Box at some point saying, oh, this is really helpful. Now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hand over my credit card and I'm going to buy a few licenses for my team. And then that starts to grow and that gives us the right to go have a conversation with the CIO about going bigger, right? That was the, the go-to-market model for Box for many, many years. And in that world where it's a, a delightful product, and easy to use and people get value from it very easily, you didn't have to think as much about value and user adoption because it kind of happened organically. Like it was a very, very viable product. But what you learn in particular as you move from SMB and our free user base into enterprise is things don't happen like that in the enterprise, right? And I'm sure you've learned this yourself, right? With, uh, with, with WorkRamp, um, you know, it's hard to get people to do something different uh, in a company. Right. It's it's about user behavior and behavior modification and change management. And um, you have to do more than just have a product that people like. Right. Again, you have to solve a business problem for them that's compelling enough that users will do something different than what they used to do. Right. 
And so I think it's, it occurred over time as we worked with more and more enterprise companies. And we saw that just having a high adoption rate wasn't sufficient in all cases to prevent churn. Sometimes you'd have really high adoption and customers would churn anyway. And like, well, why is that? And sometimes it comes down to, well, their use cases weren't that compelling, right? There weren't deep enough. There weren't deep integrations um, to where they're rating value. So I, I think it was a gradual learning because our customer base changed, our product changed. I think to some extent the market changed too. Um, you know, back then people, SaaS was kind of fun and, you know, it was easy and you could just sign up and try it. If you didn't like it, you would sign up for something else and try something else. And now enterprise, right? So it's a very different sales model. So yeah, think yeah. of one that I remember when when we were when we were going out in the early days, Dropbox, the easiest product in the category to use, but easy to turn off of it to a box to a Microsoft Office because the business value proposition we would give would be much higher, right? It wasn't about the usage of Dropbox, which was probably through the roof. It was more around the value provided. Let me talk about let me talk about really interesting topic that I think you're really well positioned to comment on, and I call it kind of CS in the midst of huge competition. What's hard in the space is that when you come up for things like renewals, you have some very good options out there. You have Microsoft Office, which has an embedded OneDrive product. You have uh, Dropbox. You have G Drive that Google can provide in their, in their app suite. How do you run a successful renewal CS org Every day when every single renewal, I'm assuming not, maybe not every single one, but you probably have to address the elephant in the room of, hey, why stay on the best of breed platform product versus going to a bundled product? Walk us through how you, how you run a team in, in amidst tough competition like that. Yeah, for sure. Listen, I think every business, unless you're in some, you know, category creation, uh, you know, kind of, uh, and, and you actually wrote a LinkedIn post, I think about a, a category creation, right? Just this, just this week. I think redefinition, I saw redefinition, yeah, yeah. redefinition instead of creation. You know, unless you're in that world where you're, you're creating something literally new, like you're going to have competitors, right? So like, I think everyone deals with this. Every CS organization deals with it. Again, in SaaS, because of the nature of the SaaS, of SaaS as a platform, it's a lot easier to switch than it used to be. Right. If you think about, and I won't go in the whole long story about this, but I'm old enough to have been around in like on-premise, mainframe, you know, deployments of software, huge upfront investment. So a customer was incented to stick around on that platform for a long time. And the vendor was not that incented to do anything really special. In SaaS, switching costs are much easier. And so there's a lot more work that has to happen on the customer success side to, again, ensure value, high, you know, high value use cases, et cetera. So a lot of what we do is focus on doing our best to measure customer health. And we've got a whole bunch, a whole framework for how we measure that. And you can think of health from a vendor's perspective as value from a customer's perspective. So if I believe you as a customer are deriving great value from Box, I will give you a high health score. If I think you're not deriving great value, you're going to have a low health score. And so that's kind of the way we think about it. So the battle for us is less about, oh, we've got to fend off these competitors all the time. Really, if you think about it proactively, our job is just deliver as much value as we possibly can which goes back again to some of the conversation we're having around delight, like that might not always mean just making the customer happy. It might mean pushing the customer, challenging the customer to do more, right? And, and one of the things that we've done from a licensing perspective is bundled more capability into our core product from a license perspective. So now the customer has access to digital signature through box sign, uh, collaboration through box canvas uh, is coming to GA soon, um, uh, security features through box shield, 
but the customer has to do work to get those things up and running. So a lot of the work we have to do in CS, and it's not just CSMs, it's consulting and support. It's challenge the customer to say, you're doing really basic stuff. You're not getting all the value you could. And think about it. That's a tough conversation, right? Because yeah. if I go to you and say- your job poorly. Yeah, <laughs> you're, you're not doing your job well. Oh, and by the way, you're paying too much for what you're using. And that, you know, that could spark the customer to say, oh, well, we'll go look for something cheaper. No, 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 that's not the point. The point is you have access to all these capabilities. Let's figure out how to maximize them. So a lot of our work in customer success is less about like worrying about competition. Not They're there, trust me. It's more though about how do you get the customer to get the most value they can from what they're already, uh, you know, spending right with you because um, they have access to all these features. Let me, let me deep dive into this a little bit further. So I'm going to take a hypothetical customer. Let's say you have customer Acme Corp. Yep. They're doing really well. Product Love those guys. There. Great customer. Acme Corp. The best Acme, company. Amazing. <laughs> yes. Uh, they're, do, they're doing uh, great things with the product, high product usage. They're showing that they're getting value. So in your QBRs, they're, they're saying, hey, we're checking the boxes for the use cases that we want to satisfy. Then when you come closer to renewal and having those hard conversations, is your philosophy be proactive in saying, hey, are you looking at competition? Are you looking mm -hmm. at other vendors? Or is your philosophy more around, hey, we keep blinders on on what we can control mm -hmm. and we kind of roll into a renewal and into the next, the next term and just assuming things are all fine dating. What's your, what's your, like if we have to get a little more tactical, what's your advice there? Yeah, I would not, I would not be complacent. Um, particularly when you're dealing with these sweet kind of vendors, right? Because here's, here's the reality. If we take Microsoft as an example, in a sense, you could say we compete with Microsoft. We don't really directly compete with Microsoft because we don't have the breadth of products that they have, right? We don't have a productivity suite. Um, you know, we don't have a, um, you know, active directory, uh, tool, right? That's not what we do. We're a content platform. And the argument would be, well, you know, Office 365 also has a content platform in OneDrive. So why wouldn't we just use that? Because we're already paying for it. We have to make that argument every day. What's the added value of using Box, et cetera. But the reality is it's not just a competitive situation. It's really a coexist situation. Every one of our customers is also a Microsoft customer or a Google customer or both, right? So it's not a question of like my CSM is trying to convince a customer to not use Microsoft. That's never going to happen, right? Or not use Google. That's never going to happen. It's more how do we position ourselves as part of the ecosystem for the customer and why there's a value add in using us plus those other products as opposed to us instead of those other products. That makes sense. So yeah, we have to be proactive because otherwise, if we assume everything's fine, and even sometimes, you know, usage looks good. And we talked about this earlier, but just because usage is good, if the, the use cases are low value, really basic things, it doesn't matter how high your adoption is. If they could very quickly say, Oh, we can just take those use cases and replatform them. It's a little bit of work to do migration, but not that big of a deal. That's a problem. You have to look for really high value, deeply embedded, highly integrated use cases. Um, and that's the benefit we think of having a platform is that we have those capabilities to deeply integrate into other things. Yeah. To regurgitate what you're saying is like understand the customer's tech stack and whether you are competing against a bundle player or not, if you understand the tech stack and you're deeply integrated into their tech stack, you can just position hey, we are the best choice in this part of your tech stack. We understand your business. Let's, let's leave us put for the next uh, renewal. So that's great. That's great advice. Let me actually switch 
topics just a little bit. I don't think I've I've told you this whole story too, but I'm actually curious to get your opinion. It's going to be around scaled CS here in a second. But yep. so when I was at Box, I remember when I was a product manager this time, it's 2014, I think. And Aaron Aaron Levy, the CEO, uh, for those of you who don't know, would rush into the room and say, oh, I just love self-serve. I love our SMBs. They're a great funnel for us. Let's go build like 10 things for SMB. And so all of all of the PMs would look at each other and say, oh, okay, let's give them some SMB-focused features. And then I remember once I started WorkRamp, I think that was 2018, I was running our, I think, our Series uh, A pitch deck by him, late 2018. And at that time, ServiceNow was just crushing it. And he's like, oh, geez, I wish we just had only enterprise customers. And, and it, was, it was just funny how every year it would almost shift with Aaron where, where he would almost see that the grass is green on the other side where I think ServiceNow had like 97% gross retention. Like in one quarter, they did $150, $1 million deal. So he was just really envying them. The reason I bring up this whole story is Box is one of the few SaaS providers that can scale the whole spectrum from your premium three-person account or even single-person account all the way to Fortune 100 companies um, yep. that use Box. And so you have this hard dilemma where you also have to control cost of goods sold, your gross margins, a lot of that falls under your team. So you're probably an expense line item that Dylan Smith, the CFO, doesn't love at points, right? Um, yep. uh, if he wants high gross margins. How do you how do you view scaled CS now? How do you has that evolved over time with the company? But give us your your point of view on scaled CS uh, in the box world. Yeah, well, I think for a business like ours, it's absolutely essential, right, to have that. I mean, and just to give people some perspective, uh, Box now has a hundred, probably around one hundred twenty thousand customers in total. So, sort of paying enterprises, everything as you said. We think of freemium customers as different because those are really individual users with free accounts. But if you think about our lowest paid account, it's three seats, typically in a business. And it goes up to customers who have, you know, tens of thousands or in a couple of cases, hundreds of thousands of, of users. So from a CS perspective, you're spot on. That's a really hard problem to solve because, you know, I think CSMs have been around long enough that companies know how to solve for very high value, very high touch customers, right? You play very experienced, very senior, maybe director level CSM on that account. And you say, go do everything you can, right? To make this customer happy and successful, et cetera. You can't do that for a hundred thousand companies, right? It's just impossible, right? You just literally couldn't scale the business to your point from a margin perspective, from a hiring perspective, it's impossible. So, and I think, you know, what, what have we learned about that? You know, initially you think about, oh, well, how do we have a pooled model where a CSM now, instead of having 10 or 15 or 20 accounts now has 100 or 150. At some point, it doesn't matter how many accounts you have in your pool because you're never going to talk to all of them. So you have to pivot to a, not a human first engagement model. You have to pivot to a programmatic or automated first model and then figure out where are the touch points where it's actually really essential to have a human. So it's not to say you're going to have a pure digital engagement or relationship with a customer, but think of it a digital first, and then you sprinkle into that, okay, when is a human required? And maybe it's, you know, you build early warning systems to identify where there may be risk in account. Okay. Now have a human reach out or automate a bunch of outreach to the customer. When you finally get them engaged, now have a human have the conversation. Um, AI obviously will take us much further down this road than we've been already, but even things like scheduling software, like just think about you got a really small company and you're just trying to get them to talk to you for 30 minutes, 30 minute consultation, talk about their value. Just getting that meeting scheduled, right? Could involve a lot of back and forth human, you know, touch. Well, 
automate that, right? Um, and then get it to the point where the customer says, yes, I'm happy to meet with you. I'll meet with you next Tuesday. Great. Put a human on that call. So it's sort of figuring out how to segment and you'll hear a lot about segmentation. Um, you know, you've got segmentation on the sales side. How do you segment on the CS side to align with sales, but also think about different strata of customers based on what they're spending, what their strategic value is. So a lot of the work in CS in terms of planning is just what's your segmentation model look like? How much resource do you allocate to each of these different segments? How do you think about ratios? How do you think about cost? And then the hard part really is not just the planning, but it's how do you then go execute, right? How you engage well with 100,000 customers digitally. And for better or for worse, that's not just a CS problem. It's a marketing problem. It's a product problem. It's a CS problem. And to do it well, and frankly, we're still learning, um, all of those teams have to work really well together. What do you do in the product? What do you do through email? What do you do maybe through social? What does support do when there's inbound requests from those customers? And um, I think it's one of the most interesting areas of customer success is how do you do CS at scale really, really well? And what I would say to people who are, if any of your audience is in customer success, if you're in scale and you sometimes feel like, oh, the enterprise customers get all the love, you know, the win notices, you know, are all about the big customers. This is actually the more interesting area, I think, of customer success because of the future is going to be digital first, right? Um, and uh, if you're building those skills now, even though maybe it doesn't feel quite as sexy as some of the big enterprise logos and brands that you have, this is actually, I think, where a lot of the interesting action is going to be going forward. Do you push the envelope every quarter, every half year, every year to say, hey, can we automate more? What's the cadence there? And have you ever gotten to a point where it's like, hey, you actually maybe automated too much or too fast? Um, walk me through just for just a couple minutes before we get to the lightning fire around here, um, uh, how, how you would recommend people look at CS and pushing the envelope a little bit. Yeah, I, I don't think we um, at Box have reached a point where we where I'd say we've automated too much. I think where if, if there's an area where we're not doing it as well as we'd like to, it's just more around the coordination of all those different groups that I talked about. So what are we what are we showing to end users in app to help them with the initial onboarding process? What sort of nurture do we do with them via email coming maybe from the marketing team over time to get them engaged in new products and features? Like that's a really big thing in SaaS. You introduce all these new capabilities constantly in your product. And they just sort of magically appear on your platform. Well, how do you get the customer to actually use those things, right? And so a lot of that is, is nurture. It's like, how do you make them aware of it in the product? How do you get them to try it? How do you get them to use it? And so a lot of our focus is actually around that. And again, mm -hmm. working with product and marketing on, on those pieces. Um, but yeah, I do think every quarter you should be looking at, particularly as your customer base grows and the diversity of your customer base grows, you have to constantly be looking about at sort of what is the best way to engage with this set of customers? And so for some of them, it's not going to be digital first, right? There's some like it, 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 we're doing very, very well in the public sector space. Um, government clients, they want high touch, right? They, they're that that's not a digital, that's not a digital space, right? So it's figuring out what the right model is for the right set of customers and aligning your resources to those. Yeah. Hopefully you're not putting the DOD in your um, skill CS segment. Right. <laughs> right. And one thing I would say is, I, and I think this is another area of sort of learning um, on that theme is that I don't think people, CS leadership think about this as an either or, like a customer is either a digital customer or it's a, you know, it's a CSM, you know, named uh, account sort of a, a customer. You actually have to do both. And what you have to think about is there'll be some customers that are digital only some customers that are digital first with, again, human contact where it's appropriate and other customers that will be digital 
like digitally enabled, but maybe human first. So think about your highest value million dollar customers. They want a relationship with a customer success manager, with an account manager, with the renewal manager, right? They, the, the technical account manager, whatever the, the high touch resources are, but you should support all of that with the same sort of digital resources that your mass customers get, right? You should have a great support site, a great community site, um, great resources that are sent outbound to customers to tell them about new features and capabilities. Don't assume your CSM is going to do all that, you know, themselves. So it's, it's not one or the other. And I think for too long, we probably thought it was like, oh, we have digital customers and we have, you know, human customers. And it's, it's not that black and white. That's a great framework. We should, uh, we should publish something around that three-part framework, but that's a great way to look at things. John, this has been an awesome conversation. I'm going to close us with a two-minute, what we call learn rapid fire round. That 30 minutes okay. went by fast. I could talk to you for three hours, John. It's been yeah, so long. Fun. But uh, okay, so this learn rapid fire, I'm going to give you a quick question. Give me a one okay. or two line answer for okay. each. These are all learning related uh, for the theme of the podcast. So the first question is, who have you learned the most from in life? One thing I would say is, I think you actually learn a lot from people who are very different from you. So if I think about my various bosses, um, and I've been lucky to have a few bosses for many, many years. I've only had two bosses at Fox in 12 years. Um, and stylistically, very different people from me, right? And so they challenge you in different ways. Sometimes maybe you, you butt heads a little bit because you don't see things in quite the same way, but you also grow because they're like making you uncomfortable about the way you approach things. And so think about learning, not just from people who already agree with you, already do things your way, but actually do things in a different way. And at first it may be super uncomfortable, but um, I learned a ton from my current boss and we are very different. <laughs> so. I love that answer. Okay, next one. What is one podcast, book, blog you've learned the most from or even that you're that it's hot on your list right now that you want to recommend? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I'm a, it's a great podcast person in terms of like, I'm all going to listen to this one for now and obviously, but um, like from a learning perspective, I do it more as, as sort of a distraction or to like maybe blend a little bit of like personal interest and, and business. So um, the All In Podcast, I don't know if people know that one. It's a pretty well known, but um. On, on the one hand, you find it fairly annoying because it's a bunch of really rich people talking about things. But on the other hand, pretty interesting perspective on everything from politics to the technology to um, science, uh, economics, et cetera, glo global political things. So that, that one's kind of interesting. Um, but I think I would say, and maybe a little bit of a, a lesson from, from my career is, you know, learn from others trying to do the same thing you're trying to do, right? So not so much a podcast, but, you know, networking with other people outside of your company who are trying to accomplish the same things you're trying to accomplish. And so some of the best things I've learned about customer success were from other CS leaders that don't even look at box. I love that. I love that. And you're right. I think all in podcast, um, it's, I'm spouting out facts from the podcast, but you're right at the same time, like who, th these are just four guys who, who've made billions of dollars. Right. They're just, like they're uh, a very different perspective than I do. Debates. It's heavy debates. So. Interesting. All right. One, one topic, if you were, let's say if you retire and all the time in the world, you would want to learn about in the future. It could be anything. Yeah. This one's easy. Actually. I am sort of, I'm, I'm a geek about, um, woodworking and I, I would love to, in my retirement, just build things with my hands. And so I watch a lot, like a ridiculous amount of YouTube videos of just a few woodworkers that I follow on techniques and tools. And, um, yeah, it's a, it's a weird obsession. You should have brought something on the show. That would have been great. Yeah. I, uh, we're moving soon. I'm going to have a little more space after we move. So check back with me in a year and I'll, maybe I'll, I'll have made <laughs> something. 
<laughs> Last one, one big piece of career advice for anyone who wants to get to the top of the mountain like you have. What's your biggest piece of career advice? I would go back to the networking thing. Um, and I probably one thing I didn't do early enough in my career was that networking. What I mean by that is not so much from the standpoint of like, okay, I'm going to climb and use my network to climb, but it's more when you're inside of a company, your perspective can be a little bit shrouded by the company's perspective, right? And so for the first three companies I worked for, everyone I learned from were the people I worked with at the same company, right? And when I got into the job at, at, at Box, I'd never run a customer success team before. I'd never run support before. I never had a team called CSM. And so almost out of necessity, I had to go find people. And the Gainsight community was a great community for me. But just meeting other customer success leaders, many of whom, if you think about the early 2010s, were also learning how to build customer success teams. We weren't the first ones to do it, but we're relatively early. And, um, you know, what, what are you finding? Conversations around like, how do you do compensation? How do you measure your CSMs? What's the job definition for a CSM? None of us really knew, right? So that networking was critical to me being successful in this role um, because I could just go ask other people who weren't, you know, they, they didn't have any attachment to, you know, box or, or you know, what, we, what decisions we were going to make, but they were helpful to me in, in, in building. And there's a ton of people I could name on that. But uh, I would say to people, don't, it's never too early to start that. And that networking comes in handy when you're hiring people, doing things like reference checking, when you're trying to hire someone, you're looking for someone, you reach out to your network and like, who do you know? It's an amazing thing. And um, it's never too soon to start building that. John, that's great advice and a great way to wrap up an awesome session. So John, thanks so much again for joining us. The audience I'm sure is going to love everything that you shared here. And, uh, I'll hope, hope to see you again soon here. Let's, let's not make it three or four years until we catch yeah, up next. True. Well, Ted, we love what you're doing at WorkRamp over here at Box and uh, appreciate you having me on the show and best of luck. All right. Thanks, John. Talk soon. Thank you everyone for joining. We hope you enjoyed the episode and remember, always be learning.